Ina mana, ina reo, irau rangatira ma, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. No my, hearty my welcome everyone, and I'd like to acknowledge our three speakers here uh, today. We've got uh, the Deputy Mayor Desley Simpson, and we have councillors Joe Bartley and Julie Ferry, and we're very lucky uh, to have all three of them. It's quite rare, I think, that you get three councillors, including uh, the Deputy Mayor, along to a meeting like this. So. Uh, I'm, I'm very pleased to be able to welcome uh, you all here today. My name is uh, Tim McCready, and it's a real pleasure to be here moderating this conversation uh, tonight. We've got a very wide-ranging conversation, and I'd love to have some questions in from the audience, as I'm sure our uh, panel would as well. So um, start thinking about those questions that you'd like to put forward. We're here in the factory theatre, and I wondered, I can, I can almost see the audience, it's very bright up here, but I wonder who's been here before? You want to show hands? Okay, fair, fair number. Yeah, I was quite interested to learn that this, uh, this is a fairly new theatre. Uh, it opened during the COVID period. Uh, but prior to that, it was a church. And before that, it was a mechanic. And I have heard that it is haunted uh, way back from the mechanics days. So, um, so just keep, keep your eyes out for anything, anything that goes on behind us. Um, the other thing I did want to mention is that this is being recorded. <laughs> love, <laughs> love the sound effects. It's great. <laughs> uh, this is being uh, recorded, the audio for tonight is being recorded for the Onihanga FM podcast by uh, the wonderful Josh Couch at the back of, back of the room there. Um, so I just wanted to warn you, if you have got any questions, uh, you, if you don't want to appear on the podcast, maybe uh, change the way that you introduce yourself, uh, perhaps. Um, and the, the last thing I wanted to say is just a general rule for tonight. I want everyone to be as open and honest as, um, as possible. So um, please no heckling from the audience. I will kick you out. I know that whenever you've got politicians in the room, you may not necessarily agree with everything that they say, but please be respectful. Um, and like I say, there will be time for questions. Uh, so before we get into it, I did want to invite uh, Amanda Wellgreen, wherever you are, onto the stage, uh, who's of course the town manager for the Onihanga Business Association, just to welcome you all here today. Um, thank you all for coming. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to have three councillors, as Tim said, and Tim and I have been talking about this for a number of months, so it's great to um, have opportunities to get to meet people and, and learn a bit about them and ask them questions face-to-face, -face, especially around business issues, which you know can get hijacked a little bit by media and different things, so it's nice to hear things straight from from the person's mouth, so to speak. Um, <laughs> for those who don't know, we're, the Business Association is um, part of the Business Improvement District, which is our town centre, so it runs from Nielsen Street through to Grey Street, and um, one block either side. And we are looking, in, we're in the process of investigating an expansion out to include um, the wider Onihanga area, which would make us quite a large business association, including industrial areas. Um, so you'll notice that we do a lot more networking and different events this year as we get to know people and try and get different people to come out and, and see the benefits that we bring. We're planning a great luncheon in June with um, Gilbert Anoka, who's the mental skills coach slash leadership um, manager for the All Blacks. So that will be a great event that everyone should have in their diary on the 13th of June at Royal Oak Bowls. Um, but more information will come out about that again, about that soon in the next few weeks. Yeah, thank you very much again for coming and good luck. <laughs> Who's that directed at? <laughs> oh, okay, great. Um, okay, so to get things started just right away, I thought what I'd do is introduce um, each of our guests one at a time and just put an initial question to them uh, and then open up into sort of uh, wider questions. But I'll begin with our Deputy Mayor, Desley Simpson, who is, of course, uh, also a councillor for Orake. And prior to, prior to that, I think um, you had six years unopposed in the uh, local board uh, as chair. Um, so uh, quite quite uh, extensive experience there within uh, the community. Um, and I did, did want to point out that during the council, the last council uh, term, Desley was chair of the Finance and Value for Money Committee. That was under the former mayor, uh, Phil Goff. And she was tasked with having to address that $900 million budget that we saw through COVID over the three years. Um, so her experience on council is very much appreciated at the moment, I am sure. Um, Desley, I just wanted to begin a fairly simple question, but it's been... Uh, just over 150 days, by my calculation, that you've been in your in your new role. 
Uh, you've sort of been thrown in the deep end, uh, no pun intended. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. How, how have you found the role uh, so far? Uh, certainly being challenging, never a dull moment, I think, would be a fair analysis, um, without a doubt. I mean, I thought one of, I mean, I didn't know the mayor uh, before he got elected. I think I had met him three times, and uh, those three times were at a uh, Meet the Candidates evening, so I didn't know him at all, really. Um, but look, I'm uh, always up for a challenge, and he offered me the role, and I accepted, thinking it would be a challenge, and I thought the first challenge would be uh, landing a budget, knowing how tough it would be. Little did I know it was going to be all about the floods. So I think that's been the hardest thing so far, without a doubt. Um, stepping up and um, you know needing to do all the media and fronting that around that those challenges. But look, I'm one of these people that I'm not here to eat my lunch, you know. I'm here to do the best I can be and to be challenged like, you know, my two wonderful colleagues beside me are as well. So uh, yeah, it's it's great, challenging, but very fun. Yeah, well, good to hear. And you're not there to eat your lunch, which is good because free lunches are out, right, from council. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> fantastic. Thank you for being here. Um, now, um, I'm sure um, I don't need to introduce Councillor Josephine Bartley to this audience. Uh, but, of course, uh, Josephine has been our local councillor here in Mongakeke Tamaki since 2018, uh, at which point she became the first Pacifica woman to be elected onto uh, Auckland Council. Uh, this, this term, and I, have to, I will have to read this because I keep forgetting, but you've been appointed by Mayor Brown to, uh, to chair the Regulatory and Safety uh, Committee. And uh, prior to your role as councillor, you were also chair of the local board here. Uh, and you have a background in consumer law. And I wondered that, that, that title, uh, chair of regula the Regulatory and Safety Committee, for those of us that perhaps don't intimately know the workings of council, uh, could you maybe explain a little about what that, what that role involves and maybe what your focus is at the moment? Okay, uh, kia ora everyone, good evening, talofalawa, ni hao, um, I'm Josephine, yep, thank you Tim. Um, the role of Regulatory and Safety Committee, so uh, it's sort of like an administrative uh, committee in that you're the committee that has to um, adjudicate and sit in hearings, you, you, you hear the dog hearings, you hear the bylaw hearings, uh, so it has that function, but it also has a function of uh, the enforcement, the compliance side of council, and then there's also the, you know, the things like uh, gambling, alcohol, licensing, um, you know, what do you call it, the, the sins um, <laughs> that come through this committee, so yeah, yeah, the fun stuff, prostitution, um, yeah, <laughs> drug, uh, you know, drugs, whatever, vaping, all of that comes through our committee in terms of regulation <laughs> and enforcement. Yeah, so that's, that's it. And, and this term, the Mayor has uh, combined uh, safety into the committee. So we are still, um, hopefully I'm in the chair long enough to explore um, how we can uh, be effective in the safety space. Yeah, brilliant, great. Sounds like uh, there's probably not much that you don't cover in that committee. <laughs> um, okay, and now I'd like to introduce our, our final panellist, Councillor Julie Ferry, who uh, is the newest councillor on the panel and on council, uh, one, of the, one of the new ones. Uh, but she also uh, has experience on the local board in uh, Pukitapapa. So she's the uh, local councillor for Albert Eden Pukitapapa. And I did want to point out how wide-ranging that ward is, because that goes right from uh, Epsom and Mount Eden uh, right across to, uh, what, Waterview, Linfield, uh, Wesley. Uh, so quite, quite a wide uh, area there. Uh, and you were on the local board for 12 years, including some of that time as, um, as the chair. Um, what I wanted to ask you, I guess, is um, after, after 12 years on the local board, what is it that made you want to stand up and be a councillor? And, uh, and is, it, is it sort of playing out how you, how you expected? Uh, well, I... I spent, the, the first thing I have to say about my 12 years on the local board was that that started out by accident. So um, I ran for election um, on a ticket that my dear husband was putting together. A woman pulled out and at the last minute I was eight months pregnant on maternity leave from my job and um, put my name in the hat and <laughs> didn't campaign. 
and uh, I got elected, which was um, the best surprise career change I've ever had. Since then, things have been a bit more intentional, uh, and um, I really, I, I really enjoyed the local board work. I really loved working at the community level and being able to help our community to make change and to really. Um, drive the things that they wanted to see improved about, about the area. But I got a bit frustrated that I couldn't make those that regional impact. And so that's why I decided, right, I've, I've, my time with the local board has ended, I need to move on. And so I put myself up for governing body thinking, well, I'm either in and I get to do that, or I'm not, and I go do something else. And either way, it was time to make some space for other people. And, and you know, 12 years doing the same thing is quite a long time. Uh, and nine of those 12 years, I was either chair or deputy. So I was in the leadership of a six-member board for a long time, and it was time to, you know, let go of that culture and go, OK, I've, over to you guys now. And, um, and I've really enjoyed it. And I have to say, um, I've known Desley and Joe both um, for quite a long time now. And, well, yes, technically 12 years. I don't think we really properly connected until the second term. So, yeah, so maybe more like, like nine years. And Desley and I kind of polar opposites, let's be honest, in a lot of ways. Um, but we ended up sitting together a lot at Chairs Forum, um, which is the 21 local board chairs all get together once a month. And um, we actually got on quite well, which I was, no offence, quite surprised by. <laughs> Because, as you said, my community very different, um, and um, you know we, we've got DSL one, DSL two areas. My kids go to really low DSL schools and stuff, and I wasn't sure that we would get on well, but we do, which is fantastic. And I've known Joe a long time too, and we've always got on. And so, actually, um, it was people like Joe and Desley uh, who really inspired me to want to try and do the role. And they're very different ways of approaching it. Both of them have shown me, hey, this, this is something where I can add value and I can make a difference. Um, and I get to work with some pretty cool people, even if we don't always agree. Yeah, awesome. It's nice to see that, uh, yeah, nice to see that there is that. And also, I, d I did want to point out that all three of you very quickly accepted to be on this panel, uh, which I think shows the support, even though, you know, there may be some, some opposing um, thinking here on the panel. Um, they're here to support uh, each other and also the community, which I think is fantastic. I did want to also ask, um, I, I can't help but, but notice that we've got three wahine toa here on the, on the panel, so three um, women in leadership positions in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland. I wondered, um, I know the Onehunga Business Association has recently started a women in business um, uh, network, so I wondered if you might be able to give uh, some advice to the audience here, um, uh, things that you might have learnt in your careers so far. All power to you, all power to you. Um, go and interconnect with other women in business, other women's groups. Um, women who support women make a very powerful team. And, you know, we are here, um, and Julie's right, you know, probably if you look at it politically, we're all very diverse, but we're all here for Auckland, and we're all here to do the right thing by Auckland. And as a um, group of women in business. You ask a woman to do something who's busy and she'll fit it in. Sorry, I didn't mean to be disrespectful for men, but um, we make a, a very powerful force and I just say keep connecting. We talk, we talk well, we get on together. Um, we will always, yeah, I just think women, to get, women together are a very powerful force, that's what I'll say, definitely. Uh, these three are, I have a huge respect for both of them. Uh, and that's why I'm here. I mean, I've got a lot of, I've got two things to be at tonight, and I said yes, because Joe's my neighbour, you know? I respect Julie, we get on all well as a team, and um, you've got to support each other. So women who support women, whether it's in politics or business, will always do well. Yeah, that's awesome, thank you. Um, Joe. what about you, what would your advice be? To businesses or just? Uh, to, maybe to women that are, um, that are uh, in leadership positions. What have, what have you learned from your, your time in council? Um, I did a $15,000 leadership New Zealand course and that taught me about um, self-validation, uh, self-reflection uh, and just validating that what you have to offer is unique to you and you have that and you can be strong in whatever you put your mind to. So that's from a personal level but also backing up what... Uh, Easily said about women supporting women. Yeah. Yeah, nice. And Julie? Um, yeah, I guess 
Um, if I was just going to give some super duper practical advice, it would be um, pay people to help you out around the house. <laughs> um, that has been quite revolutionary for me. Um, and uh, yeah, and so for example, when I was uh, off work with um, our first child, um, the first thing as soon as we could afford it um, to get back in, in terms of help, was a cleaner because it just um, enables my life in so many ways to um, have people who help me. Um, these days we don't tend to live in those sort of multi-generational households where people do help each other or, or in a, more, a village community. You've kind of got to make your own village and sometimes that involves paying people for their time and labour and skills. Uh, and so I, I get by with a lot of help. And um, some of that help is, is from my colleagues, um, but also a lot of help at home. Um, so when you can find things that take the load off for you um, and give you more time to be yourself and, and do the things that you really value, then um, don't feel guilty about it. Grab it and go for it. Great. Well, some good practical advice there. Thank, thank you. Um, I want to uh, change topic and talk about the floods now, because uh, it's still, I think, top of mind for many of us. Uh, many of the businesses in the room uh, have been affected by the flooding. Uh, and I, I, I also, when I was reflecting on this panel, I couldn't help but, but realise that we've got three councillors here in the room uh, that really uh, played an important role during uh, the flood. Um, so, of course, um, uh, Desley was uh, front and centre fronting the media uh, every day uh, and did a fantastic job with that. Uh, Joe, I know you spent day and night at uh, evacuation centres helping people with your uh, your little dog Milo. I have to give Milo a mention, um, but, but you provided a lot of support on the ground. And Julie, I know that uh, you had a broken arm during the floods and three kids at home, but you were um, online, uh, particularly through social media, multiple times a day providing people with information that they needed. And I know you did a lot of work uh, triaging uh, the things that people needed council to do and making sure people were connected into uh, the right uh, places. So I do have, I do want to ask all of you uh, what's one thing, and, and I know there is a review coming out uh, that isn't out yet, but I wondered if each of you could reflect on something that you might have seen or learnt uh, throughout the flooding that you think Auckland Council needs to do better or, or think about more. But before I get to that question, I just, I did want to ask you, uh, Desley, what was that like being thrown in front of the cameras day after day after day, um, and, and what would have been a really challenging um, role to step into? I think it, the answer to that, quite simply, is it was challenging. You know, um, those, you might not know, but I'd flown 27 hours around the world, basically, uh, the day before uh, to arrive in Auckland on a Thursday, knowing that I had Friday, I had, a, I had to do something at the museum on the Friday, but then I had three days to get myself anti-jet lagged before I started work properly on the Tuesday. And like, that didn't happen, did it? <laughs> so um, it was tough. Um, it was tough because I knew that Aucklanders needed to have the information. And what was really challenging is getting that information was quite tricky. Now, I don't want to touch on the review, but it came in silos. Auckland Transport had their stuff, you know? Uh, Watercare had their stuff because uh, we lost a dam in the middle of all this and we ran out of water in places. Um, you know, in Auckland Transport we had, you know, at one stage 130 roads that were closed and we had 1,300 slips on our own land and every silo of the organisation was feeding the information in a different way. So what I found really hard is not only did I have to be awake at 5.15 in the morning and knowing everything about everything when the briefing wasn't until 8 a.m., um, but actually go right through to really late at night, um, you know, answering people's questions and trying to get the stuff done around that. So, yeah, that was really tough. But look, I just want to acknowledge the things that we did do well. We had amazing people. Um, you know, within kind of three days, we had all our transfer stations open, taking tons and tons of flood damage material free of charge. You know, the cost of that alone is in, you know, something like $3 million or something already. Um, so we did do a lot of things really, really well. What we didn't do well, in my opinion, without um, sort of breaching anything, is, is I think if it wasn't in a policy or a plan, we didn't do it very well. So we had Hastings District Council that immediately helped out the red sticker properties. TCD, Thames Coromandel District Council did the same. But because we didn't have the vehicle or the plan or the policy to do it, we didn't do it. And I thought we lacked empathy around that. And the challenge I had was to try and get finance staff 
to be a little bit more creative as to how we could help. I think that would be a nice way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very, yeah very nice way of putting it. Thank you. How about to the others? What's something that you, um, what's something that you, you saw that you think um, council needs to think about? And I know, I know the review is, is yet to come out, but what, what could you say? Uh, I, think, I think we actually started out wrong on this, but we got it right within sort of probably about four or five days, which is probably not fast enough, but um, was actually uh, noticing uh, all of the many comms channels that the organisation actually had, that things didn't have to come through one channel only. Um, it was kind of like the reverse of the, the COVID situation where um, elected members in particular, we all have networks and, and that's what, home with my arm and stuff, I, I was able to do was to um, sort of bring together all that different information that Desley mentioned and spit it out again in something that was, you know, um, okay for my community and, and share that information around in ways that, that hopefully were useful. Um, and, you know, and, and sometimes you were doing that a couple of times a day because situations were changing so quickly. Uh, and to start with, it was very difficult to, to get that information to us because it was sort of, don't worry, we'll handle all the comms. And it very quickly became apparent that the scale of this, not just the scale of, of um, the amount of you know, water and stuff, but actually the, the breadth across the region was such that you just needed to tap all of your elected members. You know, there's 170 of us around the region. Not everybody has networks, but you know, there are people who could, who could get messages, to, particularly in our rural areas, to people that there was just no other way to reach them. Um, and so I think that is something we got better at, but it is something... Um, I would have liked us to have been better at from the start, but we're working on it. And I did just want to acknowledge, um, you know, Desi's um, very visible leadership on the media was amazing. But what I also learned about myself was that I can't do what Joe does. I can't go out there and be the person who, um, you know, goes, okay, this is your situation and I need to connect you with this person and that person face to face. I can't do that. That would have been overwhelming for me and I couldn't have dealt with it the way that you did. And um, I actually sort of ended up having to explain that to a few people <laughs> to say, hey, yeah, Joe's doing an amazing job, but I can't do that. It takes a really special person to be able to do that authentically and you did. So I just want to acknowledge that too. Very complimentary panel, isn't it? I wasn't, I wasn't actually expecting that. Um, Joe, would you like to say a few things? Um, gee, uh, <laughs> I, I actually honestly believe that we were very lucky we didn't lose more people. I really believe that. And I, I know that from the, from the first, from the January floods, 27th of January floods, um, I had people messaging me because they don't have my phone number because they're not people I know, but they've seen me on Facebook and so they rang me from their homes with water in their homes asking what do they do, um, should they leave? And you think, oh, any person would know you need to get out, but people didn't know that. Um, and uh, people were expecting the army to turn up at their door and take them somewhere. And so it got to the stage where um, I was telling people, ring 111 uh, and they'll, you know, they'll come and get, they'll come and help you. And when they were ringing 111, the, the emergency services were at capacity. And so I got to the stage on a Friday night where I was telling people, nobody is coming. You're gonna have to get you and your family out of that house. And then I was, you know, um, acknowledging the councillors for the areas where people were ringing me from and asking them, hey, I've got people ringing me, where do I tell them to go? And there was nowhere. There was nowhere planned, prepared for people to go once they got themselves out of their, their home and their flooded street. So I was um, very emotional that Friday night and very critical uh, because... I could see that people's lives were at risk and I believe council was not prepared and that, you know, we waited. We should never wait, we should act. Once you see people are, you know, lives are at risk and safety is a major issue, you have to act. Um, so that's where I was coming from with, with my responses on that Friday night. I, I just want to back Joe up there. Um, the, the problem that we had is that the civil defence centres that we thought we had actually flooded. <laughs> so
So um, it was identifying a place that they could go when the ones that we had had really up our sleeves were flooded. So it was a it was a flood to end all floods. It was seven times what even the Met Service said. But Joe's right about the loss of life. Um, having said that, the loss of lives that we did have were very traumatic. I mean, I had one in my area, and um, I think all three of us know the. Um, volunteer, fire, the team of three, we know those people um, because one of them has been a, one of them was a former local board member. And that's really tough. That is really tough. They're, they're, these people weren't people that we'd never heard of. I mean, the one that I lost in my ward um, was a volunteer at MOTAT, um, was the sort of the local park eyes and ears for all sorts of naughty things that happen in a park at night. Um, he was always ringing the police. And, um, and he was someone that had, um, you know, uh, you know, had had my political sign on his fence, you know. And all he went to do was went outside to see what was happening. And, and so that was, that was, I found that really tough, um, dealing with, you know, the fact that there, there was loss of life in your own rohi, in your own ward. And then on the volunteer people, you know, here, here were two people that put their families to bed and went off to help their fellow man and didn't come back. And look, to this very day, my Facebook profile is the volunteer fire symbol with two red lines through it because that was tragic. These are Aucklanders helping other Aucklanders. Um, and we knew the third. And we, we all worked with them, you know? And I, I remember being at Auckland Emergency Management and saying to these people, because we couldn't get hold of the one that we did know, and it was just like, I don't care what number, I just need to know, just tell me. You know, it was just like, I was shaking. It was it's very hard, you know, when, when these people are such givers of their time um, and they sort of dedicate their life to others. So, yeah, that was... And that takes it out of you, Tim. It really does. Yeah, yeah. Can I, can I, could we, could we give our, our councillors a round of applause just for their leadership through that time? So I think it's, I think it really helped a lot of people. So yeah, thank you, thank you. Um, I'm conscious of time and I've got, I've got a lot I wanted to whip through. So I'm going to, I'm going to um, change tax a little bit and ask about the budget. And I think, I'm not sure if this panel is well-timed or not well-timed because I know with that review into the flooding and with the budget that's out for consultation now, I know there's not a lot that you can uh, necessarily say, but I wondered if uh, perhaps uh, you could you could reflect on. I mean, we're, there's something like 35,000 pieces of feedback I think that have come in um, on the budget, and I just wonder if there's uh, anything in particular that you've heard uh, talking to the community that you think is. Uh, and I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer this or not, but things that that you think council are going to have to really debate around that council table um, as well, they look to put got? that budget. <laughs> We've got about two minutes. <laughs> Who would like to start it off? Oh, I think one of the things we really, we were really started debating is what we consider uh, core services, because <laughs> because when it came down to what is proposed to be cut, it's what um, certain, well, it's what people think are nice to haves, whereas, you know. In other circumstances, it's not a nice to have. It's actually a core service. So I think that's something that we have to continue to debate because um, what is proposed is what makes the city what it is. How vibrant and diverse, and you know, we already rely. We already seen through the floods that we relied on our communities, and yet the lifelines to resource and support our communities is what's up for cuts. So, lots of debates to be had. Yeah, I, um, I'd, I'd put uh, uh, considerable money on the fact that where we land with this budget will not be where we went out as a draft budget on. I, I would definitely put that. Um, I don't know the results, but I'd also put a bit of money on, not that I'm a gambler, but I'm just saying, you know, hypothetically, on the fact that the one thing that people will like is the $20 million that we put in for um, flood risk, you know, for, for climate, not, you know, for, for 
no, 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 for um, responsiveness to, um, you know, bad weather events, that, that 20 million. And I think, you know, having having had just a flood, it's very timely in people's mind and I th minds, and I think, look, it's 20 million, actually, it should be about 200 million, if you ask me, but um, for an annual annual budget in a tough, tough, tough financial time, I think that people will probably support that. That's one thing I think they will support. I'm not sure about what else. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is um, my first budget as a governing body member, and um, but I've observed uh, 12 previous ones from the local board perspective, and uh, I've never seen one that's as up for grabs uh, in terms of um, both the feedback from the community, so much feedback, but also the views around the table are really diverse, and so and, and people aren't necessarily on sort of strict ideological lines on a lot of this stuff too. You'll find someone who is happy with the operational cuts but doesn't want to sell the airport shares and vice versa and um, you know, some people who, who are like this rates rise is too high and other people who are it's too low. It's going to be a real challenge to bring it together to something that everyone can, can vote for which would be the ideal or if we can't get everyone um, to agree which I think is probably pretty unlikely um, to get a majority around the table it's, it's a particularly challenging one I think. Yeah, what a first budget to have. That's, that's oh, very fun. lucky. Yeah. <laughs> um, Desley, on the same uh, topic, uh, given we've got a business uh, audience here tonight, I wondered, um, one of the things, one of the gripes that I often hear from businesses is that, you know, they pay all this, these rates um, and, and, you know, often considerably more than re a residential homeowner would pay um, and they don't necessarily feel like they're getting value for money for those rates. What, how do you answer that question when you're, when you, when you're asked that? The trouble is these businesses and these businesses, aren't there? So I'll give you the theory to sort of back it up. Um, so I'm going to talk about the draft budget because those are the figures that everyone knows, right? So currently about 31% um, of our rates come from um, the business sector. We in the past have made the decision to look, so it's about 2.65 more than the residential rate payer. So we have made a decision in the past to to lower that from about 31% down to about 25, 24 point something percent, I think it is, um, over over a little bit each year, over a time. And the thinking um, around that is that if you have a business, you can write off the GST and the rates themselves as part of a tax write-off, whereas the residential ratepayer can't do that. Now, um, and, and then there's the use of services, you know, potentially they use more um, stormwater or transport infrastructure, or more, they have more infrastructure around that, that, that as far as council services go. But the actual increase for business ratepayers is about a percent less than the residential ratepayer. So let's just start with the draft budget because that's the figures that have been printed and that we, we know. So 4.7% so was the gross increase. That got reduced down to 4.66 because you, um, we, we, and this is the royal we, wasn't me, but anyway, we, we reduced the water quality targeted rate and the natural environment targeted rate because we had enough money to deliver the project that we're in this year without asking for the ratepayer to pay any more, noting that the business ratepayers pay water quality and natural environment as well. Um, and that uh, left, as I said, the 7% gross left 4.66 average for residential, but a 3.39, is it Ed? I can't see you, 3.39 um, increase for business ratepayers. So their rate increases are less than the residential. And we pause that differential um, this year because, well the theory is pausing it, is because there is quite a strong train of thought that the cost of living crisis for householders is going to be, is, is coming. Um, and, you know, we needed to be very conscious of the impact on families and the residential ratepayer, so we would just hold that small tweak to the differential for one year. So that's the theory behind how we do the the business and the residential rates. It's really complicated, I'm sorry, it's not necessarily easy to understand, but you guys want to add something? No. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, yeah, yeah. If I could just add, um, the local board I'm on was the only local board um, in Auckland that would systematically ask each year for um, the business differential to be paused. <laughs> um, and that was based on the idea that, that businesses were able to access some additional support through council, but we're not, council's not very good at communicating what that is, but there is some stuff that um, count businesses get that's extra. Um, but also the idea that, um, in theory, businesses are making money off the situation they're in, whereas residential can't do that. And so that, that was part of the thinking um, around sort of challenging the, the idea that over time the business differential would come down. Um, but, you know, previous, previous mayors have not been interested in that conversation at all, it's fair to say. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where we go next, but the appropriate place to have that conversation is really next year's budget, which is the long-term plan, where we look out 10 years' worth of budgets in one go. So that'll be an interesting conversation. I can see we've got someone desperate to ask a question in the audience, and I promise we'll get there in, in just a minute. I do want to um, ask a question on transport, though, uh, because I think uh, that's... Uh, Given where we're located here in Onihanga, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a critical way for people to get to a lot of our businesses that aren't uh, necessarily um, needing uh, sort of work commuters to come in, but they, they require people to use public transport to come to, for example, uh, Dressmart, which has, um, I think, about 12,000 people every uh, weekend day uh, come in. Um, I know that the budget is proposing sort of uh, reduced services, uh, but until we have... Um, until we have a light rail uh, that, that, that comes to, uh, comes to Onihanga, what are the things that you think council needs to do in terms of public transport? Because I saw the reporting on Radio New Zealand this morning that I think on the average weekday in February, uh, over 1,000 buses are canceled um, on the average day, um, which, is, which is not, uh, you know, it does not make it an appealing thing for people to use. So what, what sorts of things can council do? Well, one of the first things that we... I mean, I think reliability is absolutely key, you know? And you're quite right. We've had, unfortunately, a lot of unreliable public transport, um, especially in the, in the last little while. Um, what's, it's exacerbated, isn't it, in the last little while, which has come from the fact that we don't have um, rail. So the first thing is to make it reliable. And what Auckland Transport has done is tried to... Um, make the frequency a little slower. So it might have been a 10-minute service and it might now be a 12 or 13 or 15-minute service, but at least they're saying by making it a 15-minute service it will arrive when it's supposed to. That's the first thing. But look, we are hamstrung a bit with the fact that not just in Auckland, but nationally, and one could argue even internationally, we are have a very sh big shortage of drivers. We cannot promise to put on more buses if we cannot have drivers. We don't have the access to drivers. Um, and we've done all sorts of things with trying to raise you know, the salary levels, etc. But you can't just magic up um, people to drive your bus. It, it's just, you just can't do it. And so I think it's more important for, for Auckland Transport to be reliable and less frequent than to be unreliable and try and pretend you're more frequent. I mean, we've got the GI to um, GI to Britomart, um bus. That's that's an express bus for commuters, and I know it's not Dressmark, and I'll come to that in a minute. But you know, they have made that a little slower to make sure it's reliable because you just can't do that. We, we've got kids being left on the side of the road because the buses are either too full or unreliable, and we can't do that either. But just on your Dressmart, and I acknowledge I cannot see anybody in the room, I cannot absolutely see a, a soul, but I know that Deb, Deb is here from the local board somewhere, where I can't even see you. But there we go, at the back. Um, I can see movement, I'm hoping it's you. Uh, but I think you know one of the roles local boards do have is advocacy to Auckland Transport for a route change or whatever. It's something I did when I was a local board chair um, around a school in Glendowie Primary, I was able to pull that off. Yes, you need not a lot of help. You need, you know, the businesses behind you, if, in your case, if it's Onihanga, Dress Smart, but um, I had parents from the school, etc. But, you know, Auckland Transport will listen if they have volumes of people asking for change. They will not change for one person. They probably won't change for, you know, 100 people. But if you've got a lot of people who require a route change and that is back, backed up, they do listen, strangely enough. 
they do, but they need strong advocacy and the people who are advocating need a lot of community support for it. Yeah, well, there's a challenge for our local board. <laughs> um, uh, Joe, what would you add? Oh, gosh, that's really hard to get any changes with Auckland Transport uh, because we know, uh, even with our local board, Debbie knows, uh, and Priyanka's office got involved when we were trying to reinstate our 312, our flyer service in the Unihanga area, and the and Amanda with the Business Association recently with the train lines going to uh, Newmarket and not going to Brittamart anymore. So, yeah, it's very, very, very difficult to... Um, to try and you know encourage public transport when you feel like you're being sabotaged as a community uh, with these various cuts and changes uh, for the sake of uh, regional benefit. So um, yeah, very difficult. And I also struggle with the bus driver situation because that didn't just happen overnight. Uh, and I don't know who would want to be a bus driver. It's not safe. Um, and we've known that for ages. Uh, and of course the working conditions are crap. Um, so yeah, I remember a time when they were flying people over from Samoa to be our bus drivers. So yeah, oh, I don't know. Uh, we, we, all of us put a lot of pressure on Auckland Transport. Our local boards put a lot of pressure on Auckland Transport. And uh, yeah, I suppose it's a work in progress. Yeah, it's not easy. Any, uh, any quick fixes from you, Julie? Well, it's not, it's not a quick fix, but it's a slightly radical fix, which um, I note that the Wellington City have just put their, well, Greater Wellington Regional Council have just put their bus drivers' wages up to $30 an hour. Um, we can't do that in Auckland because our bus companies are all um, privately owned and contracted, uh, and um, their wages sit between about $26, $28, an hour. So we're going to start losing people to, to Wellington, um, who we haven't already lost. Uh, and um, Joe mentioned the, the working conditions. Um, you know, there are safety concerns. There was a driver stabbed in, in my area not too long ago. Uh, and I know that there is some work happening on that with the driver unions and, and with... And we end up in this difficult conversation because... Um, and, and I'm sort of trying to talk to AT about it at the moment. Does AT put the safety screens in? Because they're not actually the employer, right? The bus company is the employer. So, um, and then there's all the complexities about um, how many buses they order um, and, and the security features that those have, which kind of sits with, sometimes sits with central government, sometimes sits with council, sometimes sits with the bus companies. So all that stuff is quite messy. So, you know, my radical solution, which is not short term, is that we probably need to bring some of these transport companies back in-house. And I know for um, our friends uh, who rely on the ferry service, they are in the same boat, if you'll forgive the pun, um, but they have um, a really big problem with a shortage of ferry workers as well. So um, I'm sort of starting to monitor the bus driver levels a little bit like how Richard Hills managed, uh, monitored the dam levels when we were in the drought. <laughs> That's how I'm starting to feel about it. They are going down, but it's not fast enough. And um, you know, in my experience, if you pay people more, that goes quite a long way. Mm. Well, thank, yeah, thank you for that, for that insight. I want to now make sure that we get a chance to get some questions from the audience. Um, and you'll have to forgive me because we've only got this microphone, so I'll come into the audience and uh, if I can see you. <laughs> so do you want to put, if you have a question, do you want to put your hand up and I will come and find you. Here we go. Hi. I'm just curious that, you know, you talk about, you know, that there is a problem and the problem is a logical problem. You can see it's a problem with the children, with the buses, um, you know, standing on the side of the road. There it is. It's right in front. It's not working. The fact that you are only going to get that solved by lobbying a thousand people because three people that recognise that that's a problem and, like, who could not see that it is... Um, wouldn't make the difference. This is this is the thing. I, I don't get that. You know, it's a problem. So if two people recognise it is, why is AT cannot see that it is unless a thousand people tell them that it is? Is there something wrong with them? So I'll answer that. So I think I yes, think I'm going to start by addressing. Um, 
the question that was posed versus the answer. So let's, let's stick with children. Um, Auckland Transport are supposed to prioritise children, bus pickups, before anybody else. So if they are short of drivers and they are short of... Um, um, you know, buses, they need to, they, they, we have told them their priority and they know their priority is to pick up kids first. We were talking about the dress mask on Onihanga um, bus timetable that related to the fact that it wasn't a commuter timetable that came through Onihanga that the business community was asking for a bus that in the weekends did more servicing for, well, that's what my understanding is that Tim was asking, um, for Dressmart, and that is an advocacy, that is a change around a, a route that um, needs that business and community support because they just might not be aware of that. But there is no doubt about it. I mean, the issue that I helped with in my ward, what I told you about uh, Glen Dalby, that was the fact that we had boys' school, boys schools and girls' schools on a bus that was so crowded that the driver was not allowed to keep taking extra kids. And so uh, the advocacy there was to put on extra bus. The trouble is they didn't have an extra bus. And what they had to make is a decision to take that bus away from a commuter service to add it to the school. Um, so that was a little easier to advocate for, I think, than a whole change of a, of a route. Does anyone want to add anything to that? or? Um, I had some um, some success with getting a, a new route in for um, Linfield, working um, with a variety of people, including um, from the neighbouring Faux local board, um, the 191 route, and that took a lot of effort, um, and we went round and went door to door and got a petition and stuff like that, and it actually went back to a promise that had been made by Auckland City Council um, because when they were deciding whether to put a library into Linfield or Blockhouse Bay, they said, we'll put it into Blockhouse Bay, but don't worry, people in Linfield will give you a bus route. 20 years later, they still hadn't done that. Um, but we were able to show that there was going to be um, enough support, enough patronage for it, because there was a large retirement home going in and other things like that. Um, and so it was, yes, it was numbers, but it was also data. And um, then we heard that people weren't catching it very much, so we went and did a big drive so that people knew about it, um, and now it's actually um, well above the, um, the patronage expected for that route. So it does take some work, and it does take it over a number of years, um, and it takes people working together. So that was um, two local MPs, um, two local boards, um, and community members in the area as well. But we did get there, and, and now it's secure. Mm. Any other questions? from Amanda. Um, my question is regarding regional road transport. So I know there's a, you know, there's a fine line here between what you do and what um, national politicians are able to do. But you know, when you came here, you would have noticed that the streets outside are very, very busy, um, which particularly affects more the industrial businesses, but deliveries and things for the area. Has there been much, and I know we've faced a lot of crises over the last three years, but has there been much discussion around um, the council table regarding that position and what you advocate for? So I'll help you with that. I mean, um, one of the things that the Mayor put forward to the Minister for Auckland, who happens to be the Minister for Transport as well, was to do an integrated transport plan for Auckland. And the Minister immediately agreed to that, a sensible opportunity, because what needs to happen is that we need to helicopter over Auckland and agree, I mean, agree the investment from central government and local government to happen, all right? Because transport is not just done by Auckland Council, it is done by central government as well, and we need to have agreement. So the first thing is we need to agree what that should look like, because, you know, it's happened many times that the central government will come in and tell Auckland what their what transport investment needs to happen. And what I've been really pleased is is the is the the third person in the room between the minister for Auckland and the mayor is that how both of them have immediately agreed to the idea and both want to be part of the solution, and both are really positively working together to achieve that solution. So I think that's a really positive thing because if it's any consolation, and yes, your traffic was a nightmare out there, but welcome to the CBD, mate. <laughs>
you, you know, that's terrible. And then West Auckland is terrible, and South Auckland is terrible, and everyone is terrible. We have a, we do have a, a really quite serious transport issue, and I don't think it will be resolved until some of these big infrastructure projects are delivered, like Sierra. I mean, it's just exacerbated at the moment with no trains. You know, trains form a very big part of our public transport, don't they? Well, they have done, and you just take those away, t take that away. And um, you've got unreliable buses and people pile into cars and it just was terrible. You wait till it rains. We just had a bit of rain. Mm. Although I've got a bit of an aversion to rain, to be honest. Don't, don't we all? <laughs> I, think, I think part of Amanda's question is, is I think it's Amanda, um, is about um, freight. And um, I think um, the work that DC's outlined does explicitly include freight, which is something I think we have sometimes overlooked in the past. Um, and, it, you know, so the idea is that it's not just going to be about public transport or about, um, you know, congestion on the roads or anything like that. It is going to bring all of those things together and, and look at the multitude of uses that our roads have, um, including um, freight, but also if you think about some of our traffic management issues around, um, you know, community events and all of that kind of stuff. So it's going to look at it quite holistically which is quite exciting, and I probably should disclose that I'm married to the Minister for, for Auckland, in case anyone didn't know that. But don't worry, we don't, we don't talk about this stuff at home, so don't worry. Um, well, a lot of the freight stuff is going to um, tie in with the future of the port. Um, and as most of you may be aware, um, the future of the port is very much a live issue around the council table. And um, because the, the place where the port is 20, 30 years from now drives things like, uh, do we build Avondale to Southdown rail line in order to um, shift freight rail? Um, you know, how does it impact then on the other parts of the um, rail system that are more commuter focused but do also carry freight? So um, the, the integration of um, trucks, and, and the Mayor's very keen to get as many trucks off the road um, moving freight as he can, and that's mainly about the connection with the port, um, you know, how that jigsaw puzzle all works together. Um, yeah. In terms of the time frame for the work on that integrated transport plan, um, I don't really know. I don't know if you do, Desley or Joe, but um, they are working on it now. Um, there is an existing process called the Auckland Transport Alignment Project or Plan, I can't remember what the P stands for, Programme, one of those, um, ATAP, um, which has been the process which, by which these conversations have happened before and it's been regularly reviewed. Um, and I imagine that that will still happen, but this work has a broader focus. Yeah, so hopefully that's useful. Don't have any specific timeframes, but it is starting. Starting and, and he wants, I mean, you know, he wants to deliver it pretty quickly so he can deliver some of the outcomes that go with it. I mean, you know, you've got three years here and tick, 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 we're up to six months and, you know, got to get going. And one would hope that this would uh, kind of eliminate the um, things that seem to be surprises that just come out of nowhere, even though we already have... Uh, an alignment transport plan, but then you have things like, we're going to shut down your rail from Kiwi Rail. It's like, well, where did that come from? Um, yeah, that's right. And like, who does that? In what developed country do you shut down your train network? Uh, and then you have things like, if it wasn't for uh, Auckland Light Rail, we wouldn't know about the uh, Avondale to Southdown option. So it's... Hopefully the Mayor's uh, integrated plan will eliminate these surprises. Yeah. Okay, we've got time for two last questions and I've got one here at the back of the room. Hi, Peter. I just, um, the biggest problem with only hunger, and it seems to be overlooked, even in terms of talking about it, is that you're, you're ignoring what is basically the third largest port in New Zealand, which is Metroport. And so the problem with only hunger is getting traffic in and out of that. Because while I might come in on rail to there, is still dispersed of that last five kilometres. So that's been a problem probably for the last 12 years, 15 years, and it just gets bogged down in political sides having different views, which really doesn't help Auckland at all. So that, that's just really a comment I'd, I'd like to make, and I'm not sure whether you've got a response on that. No, I just think you're 100% right, and I also know it's been identified as an issue to be dealt with as part of the... Um, integrated 
transport plan agreed by uh, both council and central government. And, and the other comment I'd just make is you talk about the differential between industrial and residential, and um, you know I'm both. I'm you know obviously residential as well as industrial, but this area is slightly different in terms of the value of its property base in the industrial is quite high. So if you actually reduce the industrial rate take, it's not actually offset by the increase in residential f in terms of income for this this ward. So that that's a concern because I think last time it was about two thirds was industrial, one third residential, and so the differentials so it ends up being a net reduction in income coming in from this ward in terms of rates. Oh look, if I had a dollar for everyone on my ward that talks about whether the <laughs> then we wouldn't <laughs> have a budget hole. <laughs> well, that's right. Um, but unfortunately, I mean, you're, you're right. You're 100% right. But the role of all of us, I mean, I know Joe's your local councillor, but the role for um, all of us is to look at Auckland as a region and set a rate for the region, not necessarily each ward or local board area. That's the, that's the difficulty we have. And I would just add to that in terms of the way that the, the resources, I mean, yes, that's the way it comes in, but that isn't necessarily the way it goes out. Um, so um, local boards, for example, get um, two types of funding, one which is tied to the assets that are in that local board area that the council owns and runs, and the other which is at their discretion to use the locally driven initiatives money. Um, they also have some other bits and pieces like um, they can do capital projects with AT if they've got enough budget and stuff. But then the regional budget, which is actually most of the budget, um, that is often, um, you know, that's not, hey, we got this much money from you, we're putting this much money back into your community. That is actually worked out on a regional basis. So you don't, I mean, I don't know if this was your concern, Peter, that if there's less money coming in from this area, there's going to be less money spent by council in this area. Um, it's not that at all. Yeah. It's, it's basically the fact that we've got a, an area here which is congested with industrial traffic. There seems to be no solution to it. And at the same time, I think most, as a business owner, I'd be quite happy to carry on paying the same rates if some of that funds actually went to solve the transport problem. Yeah. One of the good things is that you have a major project in Pamua in this budget. So you have your Jubilee. Project. No, no, no. But I mean, from a, from a, I mean, don't trust me. Not every board does. No, I don't think we're going to solve every problem here tonight. Uh, is there one last question? Uh, yeah. Um, hi, this is Rajivia, and uh, just going a little further on that integrated transport plan. All the previous ATAPs or the RLTPs have advocated for you know, active modes, streetscapes, cycleways projects. And uh, recently there was an article which said uh, that you know, most of these projects will be put on hold. Uh, and the only project that will be going ahead, uh, at least for the, for the near future, is the Tiha Noa project. So just trying to understand how that works, because when we, when we talk about integrated transport plan, there is a need for infrastructure, whether it is busways, cycleways, active modes. Uh, it's, it's basically infrastructure that is needed. And also, just going a little further on the same uh, question, there is the flood uh, recovery works that needs to happen as well. And we haven't seen anything in terms of, you know, like a, like a skirt when the uh, Christchurch earthquakes happened, there was this panel that was formed. And over here, I mean, we are yet to see anything uh, happen. So, yeah, just trying to understand what is happening in that space. So. So I'll start. The integrated transport plan is not part of the annual budget. It's an integrated transport plan for all of Auckland that will take more than one year to implement, all right? And it does have active modes. It will have um, public transport active modes. It will have rail. It will have every transport option in there um, with regards to integrating how they all move, you know, move together. On the flood stuff, we will be appointing maybe as soon as tomorrow, um, a recovery manager and the role of that manager is to work with central government and Auckland Council to basically help develop a plan of recovery for the three events that we had January and February 
um, around the weather events. I mean, we have had the largest weather insurance-based event in the history of New Zealand. It's worth about the same amount as Christchurch, as far as what it's going to cost. And so it's important for us to get that recovery manager sorted, um, and I think there's an agreement been reached about who that person should be, and that will be ratified by the governing body tomorrow. Is that on the agenda yet? I know it's coming. <laughs> I just don't know what they know, because I know what I know. Um, so thank you for helping. <laughs> um, and uh, so, so we'll get busy with that. It's going to take a long time, but I think we have to look as a, as a region about how we plan for the future, because you don't just keep building where you have been building, if you now know that the flooding is very obvious there. You don't just put a road where it's been before because it's been there before. You may have to completely reroute a road. I mean, I'll give you an example, Wairau Valley. The Wairau Valley badly flooded. It took out every um, car yard pretty much over there. All the luxury cars were written off. You could have had a pipe as big as two football fields in the Wairau Valley, and it still would have been full of water. So the argument is, actually, should we have that road there even, you know, in the first place? Should it be a major transport route in the first place? And again, it ties up with the integrated transport plan, it will tie up with the recovery and how we plan for the future for floods, because like it or not, climate change isn't going to wait for another 100 years to deliver something bad for us. It will happen. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, we do have the... Um, transport emissions reduction program at council which elevates uh, you know the active modes multimodal however it does feel like um, it has dropped in priority from what Auckland Transport is putting out uh, so um, yeah you're, you're quite right with your question because that is the sense of what we're seeing as well come from Auckland Transport. So in terms of the flood, um, there's some reviews on at the moment, but I think what is most important is the community response. You've got Bridget Graham sitting here. She was leading some of the um, community response in terms of civil defence and emergency management in the Onehunga area. And then you've got Debbie Burrows at the back there who set up the Onehunga hub at the recycling centre. So we have a lot of knowledge and experience to look after our own community uh, and how that comes through in the recovery um, management review and response is going to be really important. Okay. Yeah, I might jump in. I've got one last question. And I think um, whenever you talk to, well, councillors in particular, the, the, the conversation tends to focus on, on negatives, right? We've, we've covered off, what, the budget, the floods, rates and transport. Um, so I wondered if perhaps just on a lighter note, just a final question, uh, final question to you, uh, what's something that you're looking forward to in council uh, in the coming year? Um, and perhaps Julie, do you want to go first on that? Um, so I'm looking forward to something that's actually uh, three years away. <laughs> I've decided, because every, every year lately it's been next year's going to be better, next year's going to be better, right? Um, and so I've decided 2026 is going to be amazing. Um, the City Rail Link will open, um, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, my kids will be old enough that I don't need to get so much babysitting um, organised. <laughs> and 2026 is going to be going to be an amazing year. So, um, but but shorter term, I'm actually really um, looking forward to working out um, how I can work with my new colleagues to um, come to agreements that I wouldn't have expected. Um, at the table sometimes, uh, I've got one colleague in particular who I would have thought I disagreed with about everything and already we've identified like two or three things that we do agree on. We disagree on many, many things. But, you know, and, and the idea of being able to work with that colleague to actually, yeah, let's, let's get this to happen, I, I really like that. So that's something I'm looking forward to. I like that you ended with that because I asked you for something uh, within the next year and you gave me 2026, so um, <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> um, Joe. How about you? Yeah, I was struggling to find something to look forward to in council as well this term. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I'm trying to be positive, but I just don't see any positives through this budget. You're killing me here with my, my light-hearted final <laughs> I know. I haven't got anything. 
How about you, Desley? What would you say? Well, I'm looking forward to um, Auckland getting out there and beginning to party again. You know, um, people being able to go to things. Um, you know, tourists coming back in the door. In the we've had a, a ship, I think, once a week at the end of last year. Um, tourists coming back. Um, you know, our restaurants full. Our um, economic growth coming back. Um, we've had a real tough ride. You know, COVID has been, um, it's hit a lot of people. And so I am looking forward to Auckland bouncing back and doing what Auckland does well, which is, you know, um, getting out there and um, promoting itself, doing well for both us as, as residents, but for businesses and welcoming people through uh, our doors to make us even more vibrant than what we are. Because, you know, you have to be positive, and I understand these two completely. Um, but um, I'm probably a little miss positive. And, you know, I just want to, I want to thank you, Tim, because I think that the media is an important part of what we do. And um, we, it's very easy to find the negatives. It is really easy. Um, but if you surround yourself by negativity, you'll only ever feel negative. And I try and, try and think of something positive every day or else we'd sort of, you know, we wouldn't be very happy people. But um, you have some fantastic um, people around that table. I think everyone who's who's a councillor, in fact, all the 170 odd um, elected members, they're all here for the right reasons. They're great people. I want to bring up the best of everyone. I want to find the best in in Joe, the best in Julie, and I want to work with them to bring out what they want to deliver for their communities um, and make Auckland an even better brighter place. What a way to end. Well, thank you all three of you for being here, Disley, Joe and Julie. Can we give the panel a round of applause, please, for taking the time? Really, really appreciate it.